Welcome to the Don't Die podcast, sponsored by Aloe Treatment Centers. They're out in Malibu. They're in Silver Lake. It's a treatment center I started with some friends. We want you to get the right treatment, the right program for you, and stop dying. Stop dying, Chuck. Oh, stop I, dying. <laughs> I'm all over it. It's Saturday morning. We're reaching sure herd. Immu- we're reaching herd immunity. Life is going to go back to normal by April. The kids are going back to school by s- end of summer. There's going to be concerts. COVID is behind us. God bless America. Wow, what what news are you watching? I like. I'm going to start watching that. Sixty nine million people vaccinated. That's, oh, that's what a news. good start. I like that. And 30 million people have already had it. Once they get the Johnson and Johnson, they'll have, they'll have real, you know, the people who've had it don't need the COVID, the Moderna Pfizer shot. They can just have the Johnson and Johnson shot. That's the one-time shot. And that's stored at room temperature, a little below room temperature, like a regular fridge at a pharmacy. So everybody will be able to go to Vons and Rite Aid and CVS and get the Johnson and Johnson within weeks. No, we are done with this shit. And and what done means is people are going to stop dying. And that's the name of our show. (laughs) You know, it's sad. I had a guy, uh, um, I had to say that to a, a client who took some pills, who bought five pills off the internet and, and fell out. And we had to, we had to call rescue on him and Narcan him and do all that. And I went over to talk to him afterwards and I said, dude, you, you got to stop dying. You know, it's not just a catchphrase. And he looked at me like, what? So you didn't, you didn't even try to die. You're just, you're just a victim of the times, man. Uh, here's, and I'm not even going to get into the existential meaning of life. Like, what does it matter whether you die? I'm just like, I've just decided people shouldn't die. That's all. I, I'm not saying there's great meaning to their lives. There's not great <laughs> meaning to my life, but sure there is. But I'm sure other people could superimpose it if they wanted. No, to. there's a whole little microcosm <laughs> that, that all three of us and probably everybody listening to it, us has. We've got little microcosms in which we are important. No, but then when you die, everybody says, oh, well, he, you know, the world will go on. It's not like the world stops if you die. I, I've been around death my whole life. My dad died when I was 15. My grandma died when I was eight. I worked in a nursing home calling bingo. People were dying left and right. I've been around death my whole life. My entire family, except for my uh, half-sister, youngest sister, is dead. My mom and dad my mom, dad, and all three of my sisters are dead. I've been around death my whole life. People make up the meaning of their lives. That's my opinion. And then, oh, when they die, you don't go, oh, my gosh, it's so sad. They had so much left to do. You just get philosophical in the other way. Well, they did all they needed to do. And, you know, Chuck, life is really meaningless. you got to admit it. <laughs> no, I will not. <laughs> I refuse. As a matter of fact, you know, I saw a thing that I thought was cool and I thought it related to our show a little bit. I wish I remembered the number. It's a, the line is called never use alone. And it, there was a, a, an article that was errant in its judgment. It was saying people were dying of overdoses because they were socially distancing and using alone. So they set up this hotline for all these social distancing conscious drug addicts where you call this number you give them your phone number and your basic location, and they stay on the phone with you while you get loaded. And if you fall out, they call emergency services. And if you has don't it, fall out. Has it helped? Has it helped? I think there, uh, I looked at it. I, I went to the, the page and there were like 20, over 2,500 uses and 10 deaths avoided. Wow. 10 people lived. Yeah. So it's pretty cool. But I just, I just think, yeah, the, it's what I'd like to be talking about is purpose and the meaning of existence. But all of a sudden we fell into these 10, 12 years of addicts dying like, you know, astronomical numbers. So I became more focused on people just not dying. There's a difference between just existing and thriving. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. I think I think part of Trumpism is people are just existing. They're not thriving. 
They have nothing to look forward to. Every day is Groundhog's Day. They, there's no, there's no uh, job that if they just work hard for two years, they're going to get and make twice as much money. There's no hope. There's a lot of hopelessness and helplessness in America. That's what we should be focusing on is how to, how to lift up people, whether it's in the inner city or in the rural areas of America. We need to lift up people. But we can't even do that because people are dying in those areas from drug use. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> we can't even get to the important stuff of life. We're just in survival mode right now. Just survive <laughs> no long shit. enough it, to be a hamster on a wheel going nowhere. Well, it's right? kind of like it is. It's like being on a, a sinking ship. And we went from, wow, there's a leak to we're bailing water out to run in a pump to just now like right, we got to no, salvage the, this now thing. the boat is upside down and we're sitting on the on the on the bottom of it and there's a shark circling yep yeah, <laughs> yeah we're hoping for rescue and so i'm hoping that i'm more here's the thing i'm more optimistic that we're really going to reduce the covid death rate right this year because you know my fear was people aren't going to get vaccinated well that obviously Here's a diff- here's something funny, Chuck. Twittering and being on the internet and on your phone like fuck vaccinations, Bill Gates, fuck it. And the actuality of being sick with COVID and dying, the tire hits the road right there. So they yeah. they're giving their opinion that they don't believe in vaccines, but they're going and getting them. I see that trend in the numbers, right? R- right. When 40% of Americans say they won't get a vaccine, yet there's only been 80 million vaccines offered and 60 million people have jumped at taking the opportunity to take them within seconds or minutes on the internet to sign up for a, for a time slot to get it. There's something about those numbers that doesn't line up, Chuck. There's something about it. The people are lying on the internet. Oh my God. Imagine that people fucking lie on the internet. I, I'm, I'm not going to believe right? that until I They're see it. Saying, the "Oh, internet. I'm not going to get the vaccine." Fuck Bill Gates. But yet, their mom says, "Hey, Twitter fingers, get get, get online <laughs> and sign up for a fucking vaccine." And they do it because they're all a bunch of mamas' boys. All the proud boys are a bunch of mamas' boys. <laughs> They are. <laughs> they are such a small number. I don't think it's them getting the vaccines. I think they're scared of needles. No, but <laughs> no, they're the best example. Yeah, they're a small number of 50,000 guys, but they represent millions of lost idiot guys who live in their mom's basements. There's millions of them. Millions, Chuck. And they're all the ones on the Internet 24 hours a day because they got no life. And they're, oh, fuck Biden, fuck Bill Gates, Trump is my president, Jesus is my Lord. They're all those guys. You know who they are. They're all millennial males. They feel lost in, in a society that they're irrelevant in. And, that yeah, the Proud Boys are, are, the, are the cream of the crop up on top. <laughs> they actually get out and do things. <laughs> But the but the the underbelly of those millions of lost millennial souls, uh, they're getting vaccinated because their moms are telling them to. That's my I, my opinion. Because in Texas, see, we live in California, where only like if you're you know if you're multi uh, uh, comorbidities and you're over 75 and you're a teacher and you're a nurse and then you can get it but in texas anybody can get it right in arizona anybody can get it there's no restrict every state has their own restrictions right i don't i i'd like to know what the restrictions are if, if there are any in wisconsin you know, there's more people in L.A. County there is, than there is in the whole state of Wisconsin. Oh, good point. So did you get you know, your second? Did you get your second? Yeah, one I got yet? my second one. It knocked me on my ass. I can tell you that for a day and oh, a half. Me too. Me. Uh, that's what yeah. I wanted to. Yeah. That, was, that was rough, man. That was I didn't want it to kick my ass. Here's I even the tried thing. Going to I work. was not going to tell people it was rough. And then I just realized people are such snowflake babies. If you're not going to get a vaccine because you're going to have the flu for 24 hours, fuck you, you fucking baby. 
<laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> because, you no, know, the truth is that Fauci and all these, you know, Biden and the whole administration, even before that, Fauci and the and the administration, the Trump administration, they all were very secretive about side effects because they know what snowflake babies the American public are, that they might not get vaccinated because they might have flu-like symptoms for a month, uh, a day. Right. Right. I think. Yeah. And I just decided, no, the truth prevailed. The truth matters. I had the, you know, I, could, I did it down to the time frame. So six hours after I had my second shot, I had my second shot at 7 p.m. At 1 a.m., I was sick. I, I was up all night just tossing and turning, kind of achy uh, temperature. My temperature went to 102.3. Um, the next day, I was bedridden, couch, you know, just miserable. But then somehow, like a month ago, I got Disneyland reservations for dinner. And so I said, fuck it, we're going. Then we're not going to get another appointment for months. Disneyland will be open again before we get to a reservation. So I said, we're going. And she said, well, you can't even get out of bed. I said, we're fucking going, Chrissy, we're going. It all hit me perfectly as we were sitting down to dinner in this wonderful restaurant in Disneyland. And it's just a perfect, perfect sun going down. And, uh, and it hit me like I, I was symptom free. I had no aches and pains. I wasn't feeling the flu. I had a beautiful salmon dinner. It was the greatest thing. I was like, I feel fine. It's over. Oh, this is the greatest thing ever. And when we start walking, you know, around inside California Adventureland and I got the chills and shivers and I couldn't control myself. <laughs> and I had mm. to sit down and I told Chrissy, go get me a blanket. <laughs> And I had almost give me a blanket and a wheelchair. <laughs> I almost had a collapse. I asked her to find a wheelchair. She was running around yeah, trying to find wheelchair. a wheelchair. <laughs> <laughs> and it all came back to me at Disneyland. And I was I had to poo, Mike. I had to poo in Disneyland. It was just awful, but I had that wonderful two hours. Of, of bliss. <laughs> and then I was sick all that second night and about seven, eight in the morning, my fever broke and I was fine. So it was, it was a total of 36 hours with a four hour doped up on Starbucks and Dayquil wonderful time at Disneyland. Nice. I almost need to be airlifted out of Disneyland. <laughs> yeah. That's it's just it's just rest, right? I mean, like I've been telling people after you get that second shot, try to have your schedule clear so you can allow the the stuff to do what it's supposed to do. Because when I could sleep, it was no big deal. When I tried to do stuff, it was a bigger yeah, deal. Yeah, you just have lethargy. It took us probably 45 minutes to walk from from disneyland to the car i couldn't i had to sit down all the, all the time like it's old grandpa old grandpa <laughs> well now they know what it's you know, gonna be my like friend, my friend dave says it's so perfect having children at my age because i can be their parent and their grandparent all at the same time <laughs> Oh, you're going to get that when you go to pick him up from school. Yeah, Sydney was looking at me, pulling on me like, come on, what's wrong with you, Grandpa? You'll get to go to Grandparents Day at the school and no one's going to question it. (laughs) Double duty, double duty. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm telling you, but I really am optimistic about COVID. If if you were watching the numbers, I, I don't watch the local news or CNBC. I watch the CDC website, like it has all the most updated information, and the Wall Street Journal, a newspaper that's known for its conservative journalism. Um, it just went from 27 million people vaccinated to 59 million people vaccinated in like a week and a half. It's amazing yeah, it's, what's it's happening. Starting, it's starting to ramp up. It's amazing up what's happening. And, and that's with a pipeline problem and a blizzard across the, the plains. And so just yeah. imagine, you know, we're going to hit March and April and springtime. And it's just, I'm really optimistic about, about this, uh, the, the, that we can make the death rate from COVID non-existent. And that means, see, I don't think COVID's going away. I just think you're not going to die of it. Right. You Isn't know, that the idea forget. is that 
Isn't yeah. that the idea? Is we were <laughs> keeping it from being uh, millions of deaths. And, and yes. So yes. if we get sick like we do with the flu every year, no problem. I don't. I don't mind being sick for a few days. Uh, I'd rather be sick for a few days than be uh, not be able to go anywhere. Yeah. Well. Well. And and people forget. The flu that we're all used to and people decide I don't want to get the flu shot this year and all that kind of stuff. That flu used to be deadly, too. Yeah, That flu killed, killed 11 million people or something in the United States in 1918. It's a, and the long mutating strain of that flu virus is the flu that we get. This is just a long mutated version of H1N1, I think. I mean, I'm not a scientist, but I read a lot. Um, but, but so as long as it's not deadly and it will look like it will be seasonal, right? Um, because of the close quarters that you mm -hmm. stay packed in winter. Um, if it's seasonal, it's not deadly. Let's move on. Let's get back to stopping <laughs> yeah. people from dying of suicide and drug addiction, Chuck. Our no real kidding. priorities in life. No kidding. Have you, uh, have you had a, any problems with the tizzy? With what? Tizzy. That's a, the street name the, of it is tizzy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A tizzle, sizzle, sizzle, sizzle. Sizzle, yeah. tizzy. The little it, Wayne, often associated with little Wayne. A fantastic. Uh, well, this, yeah, this yeah, is the untestable benzo. It's, it's all around. Well, yeah. here's, here's what a, a girl told me this that came in about six months ago. She switched to it because she didn't want to die of fentanyl. And I saw that as a really great, intelligent, I praised her. I said, that's so <laughs> smart. That's fucking great. Is I, and in the room, it was like, you know, we weren't, we aren't doing groups but there was like four clients around i said is everybody hearing how smart she is i'm not kidding and she thought i was kidding like you think i'm kidding i'm not kidding i'm not kidding doing right. that syrup doing syrup instead of fentanyl is a way going in the right direction oh, the, idea the, the, the way, way, is way. different that's that's more a coding thing this Tizzy stuff is is a benzo analog. Yeah, it's got it's got benzos in it. It's syrup and benzos. Mm, they're they're eating these they're eating these pills and drooling on themselves oh, no, and they no, test no. and they I, test negative. Oh no, I don't know about that. What is that? It's I'm talking a, about there's a resurgence of syrup. Oh oh no, this is the atizolam. It's a uh, it's a benzo analog, and it's just started showing up where we where we got people where I'm looking at them and I go, dude, you ain't right. And because they're they're like nodding and drooling. Well, and you then can you nod test them and, and they... drool. You can nod and drool for a lot of from a lot of things. I was nodding and drooling from the COVID vaccine. What are you fucking? <laughs> <laughs> well, and then then they go, yeah, man, it's it's tizzy. And I go, okay, tizzy, okay, cool. Well, what the fuck is that? And then I look it up, and it's a tizzleam, and it's a it's a benzo analog that's that's gaining in popularity that uh. Yeah, uh, but things like that, they never gain it. That's like Orange County shit, stupid shit. Yeah. That, that's <laughs> you like, always that's say not that. Gonna, that's <laughs> not going to catch on. In, that's not going to catch on in LA. No, but syrup is all around. Somehow, some regulation came off of syrup. People have it again. Uh, uh, what are we talking about? Are we talking about what's the syrup? What is it? It's a non-opiate. It's what is it, Chuck? It's a it's, it's, it's a, a codeine. It's like a heavy cough syrup that they mix with juice and and then it's you just get good and loaded. It's a hypnotic. Sounds like I would have liked it. <laughs> but you don't die. I mean, yeah, yeah. Here's the thing. I get emails. I get emails. Stop for one second. I get emails that I said people don't die of syrup. And some idiot's going to send me an email. Yes, they do. Blah, blah, blah. People send me emails that people are dying of methamphetamine. They're not dying of methamphetamine. They're dying from the results of raising their blood pressure, staying up all night. That that the, 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 the death of fentanyl is from fentanyl instantly. Do you take fentanyl? You die. If you go on a meth run and you're and you're dehydrated, malnourished and you've been up for four days and you do a bunch of more meth, you have a heart uh, palpitation, a heart seizure. Uh, I mean, a heart attack and die that's that's to me is a secondary condition of your being an idiot 
I'm talking about innocent kids, 19 years old, who don't know shit about drugs, snorting something they think is going to get them high for four hours and kills them instantly. That is fentanyl. That is the top of the food chain of death. And I'm sick of the meth people saying more people die of meth than die of fentanyl. No, they die of their lifestyle. Fentanyl is different. You can never have taken drugs ever in your life. Go to a high school party, snort a half inch line of something you think is Xanax or or going to get you high so you can be more social and die and not even be able to be resuscitated if EMTs get to you in time. That is the problem. Fentanyl is the problem. Of course, yes, all these other problems are problems, but none are equal to fentanyl. None. Would you say that's fair, Chuck, or am I being over well, too you crazy, know, you're, Bob? You're a little uh, animated, but you're true. You're you're totally you're totally correct in this. That it's like there is the difference of I I can take a single pill at a high school party. Uh, we all take one. I die. No one knows why. You two are fine. And it, it's a total. There's a lot of what I like to think of as more like innocent type deaths as opposed to long term abuse. What you, me and Mike were doing, we all deserve death. We all knew what we were we doing all deserved and we knew it the because risk we kept doing something that we knew was taking away from our life. Right. But the idea that you can just up and get something that's inexpensive and get it off the internet and have it delivered to a party or be doing it with friends and first time outing it and you don't get a second chance. That's the difference between fentanyl and everything else. Well, and I hear about it. I, I hear about it more from rehab kids, right? We just had, uh, you know, this your my opinion has been for 10, 12, 15 years that non addicts are in rehab. There's no way you can explain the numbers. The, and, and that's just from an ASAM criteria quantification of what an addict is. I know that we've thrown that out in favor of SEO and marketing and labeling everyone an addict. But the fact is, you can't go from 3 to 5% of the population to 20% of the population in, in one generation. <laughs> you can't. You, you just it, <laughs> evolutionary, evolutionary genetics don't provide for that. You don't just all of a sudden. So, so what explains it is this over uh, uh, kind of uh, saturation and introdu- introduction to high dose opiates to the mass public via uh, Purdue and the uh, murderous conspiracy of legislators, Purdue Pharmaceuticals. Um, McCormick distribution and and just bringing opiates to the masses, right? That's what explains it. So there's a lot of kids that are in rehab. They're just they're just lost. They're just typical kind of generation. White privilege is another problem of rehab. When you look at the uh, statistics of of people that are in rehab, it's majority of white middle class who have insurance they're being labeled addicts right i don't know that they're addicts i know that they don't have a life i know that they're kind of idiotic in their way they perceive things they're emotionally underdeveloped they're intellectually uh underdeveloped and lack of curiosity lack of ambition all those things don't make an addict addict is genetic predisposition family history trauma, use in the face mm-hmm. of adverse consequences. When you use the old ASAM criteria to measure the people in a typical rehab, whether it's yours or mine, half of them don't meet that criteria. They don't meet it. Unless the adverse consequence is disappointment <laughs> from your parents. Right? <laughs> they're not, they're, you know they're not I mean? willing to do the, the hustle it takes to keep it up either. You know, they're just not willing to put in the work. Well, rehab has become a part of the hustle. It's become integrated into the whole mishigash of it. And what I'm saying is, so this, you know, a 17-year-old kid is kind of lost, whatever, gets sent away to boarding school, gets traumatized there, comes back home, gets it together for six weeks, fucks up, comes home high, tells his dad to fuck off, boom, ends up in rehab. That person often, in my experience in the last 10 years, never leaves the rehab process. Never leaves. Yeah, uh-huh. 
they're either in sober living or home or outpatient or detox or on the run or back to the detox back home. And, and they do that unto death. That, that would be an interesting investigative thing to, to, to track. Cause we know the stories. Evan's been trying to do it. Evan Haynes, my partner at Allo has been trying to do it for years. Like it's just astonishing when you think about some of these kids have been in rehab for most of most of this decade from 2010 to till 2021. Most of the decade they've been in rehab. This has got to stop. It's another reason why our numbers are so awful. They, they, they don't have the fun. If, if addiction is a defined thing that had been accepted for 70 years, which is genetic predisposition, family history, trauma, use of drugs in the face of adverse consequences, loss of interpersonal relationships, work, school, uh, uh, social, social hobbies and interests, spiritual practice, uh, most of these kids never had those things. So of course they meet the criteria. They never established those things. So we need a new model and Evan's coming up with a new model, but it's pretty crazy in how it looks at things. doesn't even look at things from an addiction standpoint. It looks at it from failure to launch enmeshed parents, um, uh, 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 economic disparity, lack of opportunity, lack of community. So these are the things that are creating this whole underclass of rehab people. But when you get to what, and, and, you know, and they're dying of it, by the way, and re the rehabs consider themselves no part of the responsibility of that. If somebody has been living in the solution to addiction for 10 years and they die of it, the people introducing them to that, to that solution share no responsibility in that. Mm. Of course, Chuck, I made you think yeah. uh, you were silent there for a long time. You were thinking about it. Yeah, I was thinking yeah. about that. And I was thinking about the, you know, it's, I don't know if I'll be alive long enough for insurance to become flexible enough to, to see things differently than they do. I think they'll just make it harder for people, the people that need to get help to get help. Well, you, but maybe let me let me tell you how the residential treatment model happened, because it happened at Aloe Treatment Centers in the early 90s, mid 90s. So a guy named Richard Rogg, who's my friend and mentor, who started Promises, it was called Promises. Everybody kind of knows about it in the industry. Those that are older that went to rehab in the 90s and 2000s would remember Promises Malibu. But Promises wasn't based in Malibu. It was based at our Barrington location in West LA, right? It's a big craftsman house and then two little bungalow apartment houses across the street. And mostly it was a sober living that my friend Richard ran with Patricia and uh, Howard Samuels and just a bunch of great people worked there. Just amazing, dedicated people, right? But it was basically a high structure sober living right? With groups. They just, they just did whatever the fuck they wanted. It only cost, I think I sent friends of mine there. I think it was like $2,500 for 30 days. And it was better than treatment, Chuck. It was better than treatment because treatment was in Daniel Freeman hospital in Marina del Rey. Treatment was in Los Encinas mental hospital in San, in, San, in Pasadena. Treatment was in Hazelden, Minnesota. Treatment was a right. hospitalized, institutionalized thing. And these, and they started, they, you know, this place promises and it was great. And it had community and it had all the things that AA kind of at its best provides and is, it was just great. Right. The insurance industry came to Richard Rugg. I don't know in what year, I think 1995, but I could be wrong, came to him and said, Hey, you know, you're more successful than these, these hospital programs. And the main hospital program at that time was Exodus, which most of the clients in Promises came from Exodus, was, which was the rehab I went to eight times, Chuck. Eight times at 14 grand. How much is that in the 1980s and 90s? That's a lot of money. Uh, uh, Exodus is most famous for that was the rehab Kurt Cobain was in four days before he died, right? So 
So Exodus would discharge people and say, hey, you should go to this program, Promises. It's really great. That's how I first heard about it. And and, uh, the insurance industry came to Richard. They want to have lunch with him or come to the facility. And they said, hey, you know, you're more successful than the rehabs. And he said, yeah. He's like trying to follow. Like, why are the insurance people here trying to shut me down? Sober living. And he said, and one of the guys said, how much do you think you'd charge if we just started putting people in here instead of in the hospital? Hmm. And he said, oh, I don't know. How, how would I do that? And, he go, and the guy said, I don't know. It's up to you. But how much would you charge? And so Richard had to think about it, I think. He told me. And he got back to them and said, like, $300 a day, which would be $12,000. Okay. That's- you know, or 9,000, 9,000. And what you got to understand is Exodus was 14,500. I remember because I wrote the check to it, right? So what is that a savings of, Chuck? $5,000. Actually, it's a savings of 33%. That is the birth of residential treatment. It happened at our facility. Okay. How great is that? And so now it's now it has run its course. It's no longer effective. It's too regulated. It's too consumed with uh, protecting the insurance industry against fraud and not providing uh, inspirational, high quality mm-hmm. care. Right. So so something new will come along. And I think it'll probably be driven by the insurance companies like it was. It'll last be time. them looking for a way to save money that'll that will allow a program to flourish that actually helps people before it gets burdened by insurance again. Uh. <laughs> right. I think that's something, something like that. Is okay. Happening. I'm ready for it. Cause we're. Well, I mean, I think, we're, I think it already exists. It's just a matter of taking the regulation off outpatient, like why they care so much about outpatient documentation. It's just ridiculous. Here's an, here's an idea. Why don't they ask the good providers that don't defraud them? Who are the frauders? Like in any other criminal investigation, what do they do when they're trying to get a big kingpin oh, drug know. dealer, <laughs> Chuck? They arrest the little, they arrest the little local dealer. And then they go, you're going to go to jail for five years unless you tell us where you get your stuff from. We want you to wear a wire. We want you to do this. We want you to do that. They already know where they all are. They already know the names of all the fraudsters, yet they do nothing about it. That's what's crazy. Why? How does it benefit them to not shut them down. I think the powers that be see the direct correlation in the cost of providing care and the fraud, right? And the lack of success. So they, they handcuff the good providers by keeping us all at the computer, trying to prove to them we're not frauders, right? So that our care is, is lower in quality because we have to serve all these economically devastating uh, kind of things to to prove to them we're not frauding them and then the frauders aren't doing that at all the frauders don't have any high high quality people working at their treatment centers it's a bunch of con artists and all they're doing is shoveling (laughs) out billing and i'll and i'll say that and listen i'm i'm not i'm I'm not saying that i don't make a good living i'm just saying that we could have way more houses if 50% 50% of our time wasn't spent trying to pr- prove to the insurance industry that we're not frauding. We could be helping twice as many people. We can be innovating and creating this program that Evan wants to do, which is completely revolutionary and different. It's to address this issue of failure to launch meandering drug addicts. Oh, yeah. Me- meandering young adulthood. We've, we've discussed that before with how dangerous that is, because I know that any group of 20, 30 people that I'm talking to, there may be half of them that aren't actual drug addicts. They just got caught up in the life, the lifestyle and the the treatment hopping and all that. But I know the only people that are going to hear that are the ones that are like me and they may end up dead when they go, you know what, maybe I'm not a drug addict. Well, well, I just, and, and people with life experience. So if you know my life at all, Mike is part of it. So there was about, uh, let's just say there was a hundred friends and acquaintances, Chuck, just for numbers, hundred friends and acquaintances out of those hundred, about 75 used heroin and cocaine. Okay. 
including girlfriends and bandmates and whatever. If you fast forward that 100 people 20 years, most of those 75 people just grew up and moved on with their lives. I can, I can name you the names of mm-hmm. dozens of them who were in, in 1985, seemingly looking like Mike Mart, Anthony Kiedis, and Bob Forrest. But somehow in, ni- in, in 1995, you just don't see them anymore. And they went back to college or they got married and had kids mm-hmm. or they moved on with their lives. So I'm saying out of the 75 addicts, half of them, of that 37, about 10 died. And the rest of us are sober or and a handful are still struggling. That's the numbers of addiction. We're not allowing half of that 75 crowd to move on with their lives. We're institutionalizing them in rehab. Yeah. Okay. And I got to admit, millennials in particular were not prepared to move on with their life. Yeah, this, that's, that's <laughs> the problem. So that, that fits in with the whole idea of failure to lock launch. I, I always tell this story. I don't want to get into the details of it. I have two, one, one ex-wife and very, one very long-term ex-girlfriend who were addicted to heroin with me. As soon as they got away from me, Chuck, they did. They weren't addicted to heroin anymore. <laughs> right. And they both are thriving. They're both doing great. I talk to one of them all the time. And, and the addiction community is not willing to look at that. And they label anybody who takes drugs a drug addict who needs treatment. <laughs> where is Mike Martin all this? Did he, where is Mike Martin? Did he go have a cigar this whole time? No, I'm still here. <laughs> yeah. In the big book, it talks about the certain type of hard drinker that looks like an alcoholic, smells like an alcoholic, acts like an alcoholic, but then they stop and, and they're good. They're golden. And those are the ones that sit back and go, AA's for lames because I was able to stop. Well, good for you. You don't have a genetic predisposition or whatever it is that makes, that makes me different from you. People just can't understand that genetic predisposition family history. Hey, Mike, are you upset about something? What's wrong? Why are you not talking? No, I'm fine. I'm just this morning. And you know, I was thinking of two of your exes that were into drugs. And as soon as they got w- away from you, they ended up fine. Mike, do you know all the people in your life that took drugs with you? And then as soon as you left their life, they kind of moved on with their lives. Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> I never did the research. I could think of a couple of people. I know the time I could care less. <laughs> did you just listen to what I said? There's an ex of yours that's thriving and doing well. Since she got away from you, so there's no drugs in her life. I, I, I'm assuming because it looks like there's no drugs, but it has been 30 years. So I'm betting it's not a fluke. I don't know who you're talking about. Your shoes are dirtier than mine. Your shoes are dirtier than mine. Oh, yeah. Well, she was always doing good because she was born into being, you know. Money, so. <laughs> what? <laughs> Chuck, try to decipher what he just said, Chuck. Analyze it. Come on, Chuck. He was saying that money, he was saying that money protects you from being an addict. He just said that, Chuck. No, here's what I was saying, Bob, is you hooked up with drug addicts, which I could never figure out because they want drugs. (laughs) I always hooked up with somebody who didn't have a drug problem, but a a codependency problem. You know, I targeted them, basically. It was very obvious, you know, I, it was obvious to me as a businessman, drug, drug addict, <laughs> that if I had a girlfriend that was using, she would want me to get drugs for her all the time. If I had somebody who was codependent, they would help me get the drugs. And, you know, that's why I did a little better than you and it lasted a little But longer. they did cocaine. Is cocaine not a drug? I don't think they did cocaine. Who, who did I cocaine? did cocaine with your ex-wife and and the person that we're talking oh, I don't, about. Yeah, well, then back then, you know, things were so weak, Bob. It was like, you know, the cocaine was cut. Everything was like, you know, people were snorting the shit. They, you know, nobody knew how to do fucking drugs, right? I mean, you know, Bob, do you remember those little tiny Coke spoons that they had? People used to carry them around, like even Frenchie at a club. Chuck, are at a you club would have a little he fucking. He doesn't consider snorting cocaine doing drugs, Chuck. What, uh, this is a no, it's it's not. substance use, not it's like recreational use disorder. They were having fun. Bob, why do you think? Hey, but Chuck, why do you think they called it candy? You know. <laughs> What the fuck do you think they called it candy? They had these little spoons and they went, ooh, sniffy, sniff, sniff. It's just stupid. Recreational drug use was the stupidest thing I could ever imagine. I always 
told myself that, you know, if I'm going to do drugs, I'm going to do them fucking right. And I'm going to tell a great rock and roll story right now. Chuck, you want to hear it? Mike just yes, inspired it. So this is Mike's girlfriend that we're referring to, who apparently had no problem with drugs, just did them. Um, uh, we had a party at her house. Parents were gone. And we had a party. And we decided Thelonious Monster is going to play. And Keith Levine at the time from Public Image was in huh. Thelonious Monster, was in the band. Are you following this, Chuck? Yeah, huh? I am. That's pretty cool. And so we played there, I think, for over a two-day period of time. It just seemed to go on and on and on. <laughs> that sounds horrible. <laughs> and, and the second <laughs> night, I think we played a gig, and then we went back to that house and played in the living room and had this big party. And this friend of ours from the band Gang Green, I think, hmm. um, yeah, Boston. Boston. Uh, he was he had never been in a house like this, like a Southern California, really like nice house that has sliding glass, beautiful sliding glass, like kind of, you know, like modern, you know, big sliding glass window to go out to the pool area. And this guy was so crazed on drugs and we were playing in the living room and he went running to go jump in the swimming pool, but he didn't realize like it's a glass window. <laughs> and he remember Mike, oh remember Mike? God, that's and he right. ran yep. and he, yep. you know, he didn't just bounce off it. He shattered it and broke it and ran through it and cut himself all up. And he's bleeding like profusely. Oh, no. Like Chuck, this is one of those houses up in Beverly Drive that's like, you know, that's a big mansion up there with Bob Dylan's house. And I think Ch uh, Charo lives around <laughs> as a neighbor. And, you know. These are the, the, now this is what I'm talking about. These are the type of people that I decide, you know, I'm like, well, this is a, this, this is, is a great, nice neighborhood. Uh, <laughs> no, but, no, but so I want to, I want to show you. But Chuck, <laughs> what is the momentum one needs to go through one of those sliding glass doors? Like I, I've never been able moment. to, I've never yeah. been able to get all the way through. I've only so this guy them. goes. Well, they used to make them. They used to make them. Different. So this guy goes through it and he's cut his arm right, Mike, and blood was just pumping with his heartbeat out, right? Yeah. Who gets yep. nominated to take him to the hospital? Bobby Forrest. Because I was the most, Chuck, I want you to know, in this scenario of Thelonious Monster and all the people from Raji's or whatever. I'm the most responsible person. Oh, that's oh a sad, pretty frightening sad house. Yeah. So I said, I wrap it up. Like we got, uh, cause I always wear those button shirts. I wrapped it up around the person's arm. I got him in the car, drove him to wrap it up, I'll take it. Yeah. Yeah. And then and trying to explain, he went through a plate glass window and they're like, and just like what you thought, that's impossible. You can't yeah. go through. You can't go through one of those windows. Mm -hmm. They're like a half inch thick, right? Yeah, that's a that's a pretty serious. Yeah, to be able. Idiot. And then and then, and so then yeah. and then this is back when nobody before Obamacare, so nobody had insurance. He didn't have insurance. Or sitting in the UCLA waiting line, he's you know holding his arm up so the blood stays in his body, and we <laughs> waited there for like two hours like that. That's American healthcare right there. <laughs> and and then fast forward, this is the craziest thing. About a year later, Spinal Tap, the Circle Jerks with Chuck Biscuits and Flea playing drums and bass, play the music machine, a benefit for the Zero One or something, right? And Gun Club is playing. Me and Flea are pogo dancing, or, you know, whatever, slam dancing at the Gun Club. And Flea gets up on stage right next to Jeffrey and does, you know, like the kind of Adam and the Ants, you know, the thing that Circle Jerk guy, you know, that, you know, we were, we were trying to be punk rockers, though we were about five years too late. But uh, so he he gets up there and he's, he's doing his little thing and then he stage dives off of the two foot stage of Music Machine, which uh, is not that tall. And he jumps and he has his mouth open and he's going, yeah. And he lands in somebody's uh, body with his head and bit his tongue off. Fleet it. Fleet it. And so, so then I'm dancing around. All of a sudden he's down on the ground, just covered in blood. And he's like blood coming out of his mouth. And I was like, what the what fuck the has happened? And, and we get him and we go into the backstage area. And we're looking at his tongue. Chuck was just hanging by like a, a half an inch of it. Yeah. it was just hanging oh. off. And he's like, what is going on? And, and I was like, 
dude, you bit your tongue. We got to go to the hospital. And then I'm driving him to the hospital, right? And I don't know, can they sew tongues back on this? And he's going, I'm not going to be able to talk again. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to just little. chop it off and he's going to have this short little tongue, right? <laughs> like, who knew that they could sew tongues back on? <laughs> so we get to UCLA. Same thing that happens with the gangrene guy happens with Flea with his tongue hanging out with bl- his mouth full of blood. <laughs> you, you have insurance? Do you have insurance? Like, insurance? What's insurance? His tongue is fucking come off. We sat there. You're making we sat him sign paper. For another hour and a half with blood yeah. pouring out of his mouth until finally I they got him and sewed him back. So when, just so you know, when you bite your tongue off, they sew it back on, then they sew your jaw shut so you can't eat, so you can't fuck with the tongue. Oh, so Jesus he couldn't Christ. eat for like two months. He couldn't eat for like two months. He had to drink out of a straw through the backs of his teeth. But that was the American nice. Medical Association back in the day. Even if you bit your tongue off, even if your arm is amputated, you have to wait in the emergency room. Even if your, <laughs> your arm, arm is so some things are better. Can you hold your arm up in the air? Can you stop bleeding so much in our emergency room? <laughs> yeah, we're afraid that's not life-threatening enough. It is true. Chuck said it. It is better. It's better now than it was then, but it's not very good now either. That was Chris Doherty. He was a singer, but it was his friend that jumped through the window. Did you ever know a band called Gang Green, Chuck? Yes. They're <clears throat> great. They were so fun. They were one of the funnest bands. We used to stay at their place yeah. in Boston when we they were in Boston. We I thought they had there. some sort of resurgence lately, too. A book came out. I have it here somewhere about Boston punk rock. It's called Post Punk and New Wave, a punk rock yeah. book that's got gangrene all in it. Yeah, there was there was all these bands that never got their just reward. Remember Kraut from New York, Mike? Dougie Kraut? Kraut was friends of ours. They were a New York hardcore band and Gangrene from Boston. Obviously, Soul Asylum and Replacements did pretty well in Minneapolis. Um, I went, remember the yeah. church, remember church in Chicago, Mike? Oh, he had a band, I think. Oh, yeah. Jeez. Wow. That, so we had friends all across the U.S. Here, here was the Thelonious Monster U.S. tour friendship thing. So if you go to the South, if you go to phoenix uh it's chris kirkwood and meat puppets if you go to um well the big boys that's in austin you go to austin it's big boys and butthole surfers and then you go to new orleans carlo nuzio ivan neville party 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 to the break of dawn chuck party 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 till the break of dawn then you go to dc which was you know, hodgepodge of, of, you know, different, uh, different elements of the H of the DC hardcore scene. Then you go to New York and Agnella, um, Dougie Kraut, the Kraut guys, bad brains guys, um, and flesh tones, Peter from the flesh tones, Joey Ramone, Chuck, imagine a time where you get to New York city, you're parked the van, you're staying at some shitty hotel and you just go to your friend's houses. I go to Aunt Agnellis. We walk around the corner, Joey Ramone standing right in front of the pyramid club all night, just talking and hanging out. That was <laughs> the era that me and Mike lived in. That's pretty the, cool. The first time, I learned how to score heroin was Ron and Mike from TSOL, Thelonious Monster TSOL were on tour, get to the place we're playing and we're, everybody's loading the equipment in to go sound check. And Mike and, and uh, I, I think it was Mike and Ron start just walking. And I go, where are you guys going? I'm walking with them. You know, I'm a little kid like, hey, where are you guys going? Where are you guys going? What's going on? What's going on, cool guys? Could I come with you, cool guys? <laughs> <laughs> and they're just walking yeah. and they're like, yeah, we'll be back, Bob. And I was like, where are you guys going? Are you going to get pizza? What are you doing? <laughs> and I followed them, and they knew exactly where to go and score heroin. I couldn't believe it because I had already done heroin for a year or so, but in that kind of pussy way, L.A. way, where you pay somebody to go get it for you, and they rip you off. And these guys are going right to the fucking street. And I, and I couldn't believe it. 
that you could just buy heroin right on the street for $10. And I just thought I had, <laughs> they had introduced me to a magical place, Chuck, a magical world where you actually, these are the guys that the guy I give the money to goes to. Oh my God. I figured out a great thing here. I don't have to pay top Jimmy to get me heroin. I can get it from these guys <laughs> on the street. They used to lower buckets down and you'd put your money in and go up to some window and then come back down with a balloon in it with a, with paper. Actually it was a paper. No, they didn't put them in balloons. How about the fact how about the fact that in 1985, when that was, and I bought a baggie of heroin for $10, I was giving Top Jimmy $30 to get the same amount. What do you think happened in my mind, Chuck? Something happened in my Just mind. Blown. blown. <laughs> and Jimmy missed your business after that because <laughs> you were supporting his habit and paying his rent. Top Jimmy hit the skids right there, that moment. <laughs> yeah, he lost his income. <laughs> oh, Bobby, Bobby grown up. <laughs> uh, I figured it out. Like, I didn't know it was this easy. This is kind of safe. I feel safe. Why did I think this is unsafe? Why did I do that? Why was I so worried about this? This is a good deal. And, um, and nowadays, those kids that we're talking about, they've never had to learn how it works or slowly progress in their disease. They just start at a hundred miles an hour. But that level of comfortability is still there where, where today is more dangerous. You know, they get comfortable. They go, Oh, that wasn't so bad. I didn't really, you know, I didn't die when I took fentanyl. And then the next time, you know, it's a little bit, they get more comfortable. And, and the next thing you know, they're dead because they're I just, comfortable. Yeah, Chuck, you're the first person I heard say, Clients were claiming that uh, that fentanyl was their drug of choice. I didn't believe it. And now I see it all the time. I was just like, ah, he's exaggerating. People, Mike, kids, little girls, 20 years old, mm-hmm. are saying their drug of choice is fentanyl. I yeah, they don't, they don't want like, to play. It, yeah, it might as well be your drug of choice is death. My drug of choice is jumping off of really tall buildings. My drug of choice is like a crapshoot of whether I'm in a liver. Yeah, when I when I first was hearing that, I thought it was like some chest beating about how badass they are. And, and then it's it was real. Just like, and then it's just like, oh my god! And, and then it was like you were saying, it wasn't people. They weren't bragging about it. They they just said it like it's so normal. Just like the death is so normal amongst yeah, them. Yeah, and we we we've talked about this before too. And I have no doubt in my mind that you. All three of us would have been into this drug if had we oh, right, been right. today. Well, I, I believe I would have been one of these anti-maskers if I was if I was if I was, you know, if if COVID hit in in 1985 at that gangrene party at, at that house, Mike, you think I would have been, oh, everywhere yeah. you mask, everybody make sure we socially distance. <laughs> so when I get mad no. at millennials down in Florida or whatever, I'm being a hypocrite. They're 20 years old and they don't know any better. The, the, and these kids that are saying fentanyl is their drug of choice. I know it is genuine. They're trying to help me help them. They're telling me the truth that every day they go out and they want to find fentanyl. And they, you know, and if you dig, if you dig and talk with them about it, they they'll explain that they're very careful. Right. And mm. much like me in relation to all my friends that died of drugs, I'm thinking they're thinking I'm not going to be the one that dies. I'm very careful. Right. And right. And so uh, and and I've also seen a new kind of component to it where they're even ca- concerned for their other fentanyl friends. So that's another good sign that like, yeah, you know, I look out for my friends. I try to tell him that you can't. You can't take so much or you got to be careful or take a little bit at a time. So you're seeing this kind of working in the Gen Zers. I, I really yeah, do see it. There is I a little bit Gen, of compassion. Gen Zers are very different than millennials. They are very different. I don't know what went wrong with millennials. We might have to chuck up the whole generation. <laughs> but Because uh, we raised them. <laughs> yeah, because we yeah. raised them, dude. <laughs> <laughs> how many, how many millennials do you have? I have. I raised I have one two. millennial. How many do you have? Two. I, yes, I have two. I'm part Chuck's of the problem. Fault. It's Bob it's, and Chuck's fault. Yep. What did we do wrong, Chuck? What did we do right, Bob? That's 
That'd be a much shorter list. That's a better question. Yeah. That's do you think? Uh, I really want to dig into this, but we're at the end of the, of the time. But Chuck, do you think being buddies with our sons was a wrong thing? Oh, too much, yes. too much kidding? buddy, too much. Oh, look at his reaction, Mike. Too much buddy, buddy might have created this whole fucking nightmare. Uh, I think I think we yeah. we screwed up when kids became more important or their opinions were more valuable than the adults. I think that was a, a major polar shift and it, it kind of threw things upside down. Uh, the so idea you that- think it's a so you think it's a good correction that I tell Elvis nobody gives a fuck what he thinks. Is that is that how I should do it? Well, that's kind of an extreme swing oh of the pendulum. There, we were talking about that earlier, Mike. You know, Mike was talking about. The I told, I told you, it's I an extreme swing. I thought it was necessary a couple weeks ago. What, what was it? Thoughtful, helpful, intelligent, necessary, and kind, Bob. It was. It was. <laughs> it was wow. very direct, and it was think. truthful. It was direct and truthful. Okay, but was it the think the think acronym of thoughtful, helpful, intelligent, necessary, and kind? No. What he wants to do is co-parent Sydney, and he's pointing out all these things that he doesn't think are good for Sydney, and that we're bad parenting Sydney. And I and I. You know what I mean? <laughs> You're right. Bob, you, you should just thank him. Thank him for his input. Come on. Do you get that mic? Do you get that mic? Uh, I, I do. And, I, and, and that's exactly what I say. I say thank you for your input. <laughs> that's oh that's the nicest fuck there yourself is, I've there ever is heard. The, that is the nicest nobody gives a fuck what you think. Uh-huh, yeah. I'm going to use that. Okay, yeah. Mike, how do you say it again? Make me say it. Okay, go. <laughs> say what you say. I say thank you for your input. I've duly noted. I really appreciate your input. I'll I'll put that to thought. You know? Something, you know. <laughs> I'd like to process your logic with some other adults. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, Chuck. This is coming at, this is, Mike Mart is your dad, and he's saying that to you. You know that that's bullshit. I'll put that to thought. I've known Mike Mart for 40 years. I've never heard him say, I'll put that to thought. I'm going to start using it though, <laughs> because I like it. Is a really nice. It is a really nice. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> exactly. Oh, appreciate. So next episode, we're gonna we're gonna explain how Chuck and I went so wrong and caused the millennial failure to launch epidemic. Apparently. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love you, guys, man. you know no it, it, you, this gets even better mike you're gonna love this i was chuck's mentor in how to correct his relationships with his millennial sons so we're gonna explore all of that and i shared oh, with you many okay. of the mistakes i made with uh, with elijah I'll remind you the next. I'll remind you before next, we get on the next, next episode is gonna <laughs> next be about episode. millennial upbringings and what went wrong I think I'm going to be sick for that. (laughs) I think I'm not feeling well then. You know what? You want to know what the greatest moment of of, uh, parenting didn't come from me. It came from Elijah. I said, I said, uh, you know, uh, know, I was grinding him because I was working and he was graduating from high school and just he'd eat cereal in his pajamas like at five o'clock when I got home and just like the typical millennial thing. And I said, this is not working because it was just me and him living in Echo Park. And I said, this is not working. I can't, I, I don't want to re- be resentful towards you, you know, using the AA words, Chuck. I don't want to, mm-hmm. you know, you just, you just staying up all night and you don't come home and you're fucking eating cereal and you're so disrespectful and blah, blah, blah. And he goes, it's all right, dad, I'll just move into Amy's house. And he moved out that night. It was so crazy. And I felt so abandoned. Ch- yeah. I felt abandoned. What are you talking about? Because <laughs> your buddy left. <laughs> my buddy moved out. My buddy said, I'm moving on to better, better living environment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> your cereal sucks anyway, Dad. Oh, my Dad. God. I, was, I felt like such a failure that night. I sat in the living room. I think I was crying. I was like, what is going on in my life? My son nice. hates me. I'm I'm sober. I'm doing everything right, Chuck. Why is this happening? 
So we're going to investigate all that next time on Don't Die. See you guys later. Don't Have die. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, this is Bob, and you can get a hold of Aloe Treatment Centers at 888-595-0235. That's Aloe Treatment Centers in Malibu and Silver Lake. 888-595-0235. Tell them Bob told you to call.